from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, inside the corporate market for fuel cells, what Dow has learned about valuing nature, a CSO's guide to talking about climate change, and why, for sustainability, August is the new October. We are counting the months this week on 350. It's August 3rd, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy is off this week, and joining me here in Green Biz Studio is senior writer and transportation analyst Katie Fehrenbacher. Hello, Katie. Hi, Joel. You have uh, been doing just amazing pieces on transportation and, and sort of the, a lot of the new technologies and new companies. But beyond that, that's like half your job. <laughs> the other half is, is putting together the program for the upcoming Verge Transport. How's that going and what are you excited about? It is going great. One thing I'm particularly excited about is bringing in the aspect of equity when it comes to electric vehicles and also ride sharing. So I'm building a couple of sessions around looking at how for electric vehicles, a lot of the uh, people who own electric vehicles today are homeowners. So there's this whole um, consternation around the fact that people who rent uh, don't necessarily have access to charging for electric vehicles, but also low-income areas don't necessarily have access to either the vehicles or the chargers. So we're going to have a session focused just on um, equity and electric vehicles. That's a really interesting topic. And I know there's trust issues on both sides where both some drivers don't want to go into so-called bad neighborhoods, but also people who live in those neighborhoods have trust issues about whose car they want to get into. So I've spoken with some people and done some writing on this. I think that's a fascinating topic. And I know it's only uh, growing as the the field grows. Uh, Cool. So what else? Another thing is the electrification of fleets, which doesn't necessarily sound sexy, but it actually is very fascinating. Um, we're going to have a summit focused on fleet electrification. So basically the the market is focused around some of these um, big delivery van fleets or transit bus fleets. And right now they use diesel fuel largely. So um, some of the early adopter companies are investing in, uh, like UPS is investing in electric delivery vans or certain cities are investing in electric buses um, to lower emissions, but also to lower some of their fuel costs. And the uh, summit, these are part of the half-day invitation-only uh, summit that you'll, uh, you'll be facilitating the transportation one on fleet electrification. This is where we try to get 80 to 100 of the right people in the room, right people being the, representing sort of the ecosystem to take on some of the big challenges. So, um, yeah, this is really uh, interesting because we've never focused on transport this as much as we are we are this year um any other things that uh, highlights that come to mind yes um one thing is that data can play kind of a really interesting bridge building and solution role for connecting cities and ride sharing companies so you've probably seen in the news lately that you know companies like Uber and Lyft um, sometimes um, uh, are going head to head with certain cities about 
increasing congestion in their cities. Um, so in particular in New York, um, New York is figuring out um, right now if they're gonna be regulating the number of Ubers that drive around um, New York every day. So um, one of the solutions that can help ride sharing companies and cities solve these problems or um, you know create solutions is actually how to share data. Um, so that's, that's a really fascinating item. So I'm building a, a session around that as well. Cool. Well, that's a lot more to come on Verge 18 coming up uh, middle of October, October 16th to 18th uh, here in Oakland, California. That's that week. Now let's turn to this week in review. You may have missed it, but this week on Wednesday, August 1st was Earth Overshoot Day. Now, if you don't know what that means, this is uh, a day that uh, is, it was created by uh, the Global Footprint Network, uh, among, among others. And it looks at, at, at what point in the year do we basically use up the Earth's budget of ecosystem services. So what they do is they dig all of Earth's, what they call their biocapacity, the, the amount of ecological resources that we have that the Earth is able to generate every year. That's our budget. And then divide by how much we use and multiply by 365, the number of days in a year, and you figure out what day do we actually overshoot our budget? What day are we spending more of, of our environmental resources than we actually have available over the course of the year? And and it, when this was started in, in 2006, Earth Overshoot Day was in October. Now it's August 1st, and it gets earlier every year, so I presume that, that next year will be in in um, July. So this week we ran a piece by Matisse Wackernagel, who is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the, the brains behind Earth Overshoot Day. He is the president of the Global Footprint Network, along with Javier Hout, who is the senior vice president at Schneider Electric, and Terry Ahern, who is the CEO of the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency. They wrote a piece called one Planet Prosperity, the business case for addressing Earth overshoot. It's a really interesting look at, at what are the business implications of all this now. Um, I think it sort of is obvious, but it talks about specifically how how uh, Schneider Electric, uh, for example, is is using the concept of Earth overshoot as it as it uh, starts to look at its strategy going forward. It recently this week uh, published a white paper called "Living with Finite Resources: Strategies for Sustainable Resource Utilization," which we link to uh, in the piece. Uh, and so this is just a really interesting topic. And I had a converse, uh, opportunity to talk to Matisse uh, Vakanagel from their Global Footprint Network this week to talk a little bit about what business should be thinking about in terms of Earth Overshoot Day. Here's what he had to say. So Matisse, it sounds like Earth Overshoot Day should be of interest to companies. Do you see companies getting involved or, or picking this up in any way? There are ever more companies recognizing that actually if they're aligned with physical reality, their bets will just more likely turn out positively. The more we know about the world, the better we can bet about the future. Every investment is a bet in the end. And so uh, our work, for example, with Schneider Electric, they have recognized that if their strategy is aligned with physical reality and actually aligned with moving humanity out of overshoot, they are more likely to encounter an expanding market rather than a shrinking market. So there's a strong business case to be made as well to recognize physical reality. 
I imagine a lot of the uh, audience listening would say, well, if I went into my team or my boss and said, Earth overshoot, uh, we're busting the, the ecological <laughs> budget, they'd get laughed out of the room. So how, you've talked with governments and companies and lots of organizations about this. How do you describe it or articulate it in a way that, that doesn't get you laughed out of the room? <laughs> uh, I mean, in the end, it's a risk conversation. For example, I come from Switzerland. Switzerland has a high income. Uh, it uses or it consumes resources four times faster than ecosystems in Switzerland can renew. Now, the question is, is that a risk for Switzerland? And then people say, maybe not. We have so much money in Switzerland, we can always buy it from somewhere else. But then you say, yeah, that's true. But relatively speaking, the Swiss are earning less and less compared to the other income people. Like, for example, China's income is growing more rapidly. So the Swiss advantage is vanishing. Will it be safe to assume that Switzerland can always use more than what it has, particularly given that the world is overusing its overall resource budget? Or is that a risk for Switzerland? That's one question. The second question is, can you really adjust that quickly with your infrastructure? Uh, because the way we power ourselves or the buildings that are built, you cannot rebuild them overnight. So you need to think ahead. Like with a super tanker, you cannot just turn it around last second. You know, So that's kind of similar with companies. Companies, they think they can act very quickly, but actually innovation cycles or product cycles have quite long time horizons. So where does the, the risk come into a company for Earth Overshoot? The, from a number of perspectives, but one risk is if you are invested into a product and service line that will be needed less and less in the future, uh, that will eat into your profit. I mean, so so you need to think ahead with innovation, not just do you have innovation, but is this innovation producing things that will be needed more in the future rather than less? So if you could wave a wand with the three wishes or maybe just one, <laughs> what would you like to see the business community be doing to bring this idea of Earth Overshoot into the, the forefront? I mean, there are a number of powerful tools that we already have at our disposal. One of them, very basic, is life cycle cost assessments to, under, to think about things actually from a life cycle perspective and saying, what does it cost over time and what does it benefit over time? So we should, we should look at finances far, far more from a life cycle perspective rather than from a payback perspective. If you say payback, then you just look at things that quickly make money and you don't care about its future implications. If you look at it from a life cycle perspective, you start to realize, is my investment going to be valuable in the future? Because I think one of the biggest mistakes we're making is that we are not looking at the tail end of investments to recognize that, will that be valuable in the long run? Will it be valuable in a time of resource constraints? Because if it's not valuable in a time of resource constraints, you will lose investments at a time when also the economy is going to be weak. So it's kind of a double risk. So as I said a few minutes ago, that when you started this in 2006, uh, Earth Overshoot Day was in October. Now it's the 1st of August. I imagine next year it'll be sometime in July if the trends continue. How early can can it actually be and, and us still be a viable planet? That's a, a good question. I mean, that's why we had 197 nations signed a Paris Agreement saying, wow, we should really limit climate change to two degrees Celsius. You can translate that. If you look at the honest numbers of IPCC, what does it mean to stay within two degrees Celsius? You come to a very quick conclusion that it would actually mean to move out of fossil fuel use way before 2050. 
So I think we need to be honest about what it takes. If we, So it's a choice. Either we say we do it and then we'll have a stable climate and stronger agriculture and more other possibilities, but it takes effort, or we don't do it, then we have another set of risks. I think not acting, the amounts of risks are much, much larger. So by preparing ourselves for this world and, and thinking what kind of, how can we actually live well on the budget we have available, that's where we find business opportunities that can last. Well, Katie, you had a piece this week about UPS developing an electric delivery truck with a startup. So give us the lowdown. Yes. So UPS, obviously massive delivery giant, and um, they have a uh, program to develop alternative fuel and lower emission vehicles. And so electric vehicles are just one of the types of vehicles they're working with. So um and the, their new news with the, is that they're working with this tiny startup called Thor Trucks. And this startup is based in Los Angeles. And UPS and Thor are developing an electric delivery truck that will specifically meet UPS's needs. Um, and UPS is testing it out over the next six months. And um, they'll be deciding at the end of that test period if they want to buy a larger um, order of these uh, trucks. So UPS has been doing this kind of thing for a long time. They, According to their website, they say they have a rolling laboratory of a little over 9,000 vehicles that drive more than 1 million cleaner miles each business day. Uh, how is this, why is this significant? What's going on here that's uh, of note? It's significant because UPS has a massive fleet of vehicles. So they're a real leader in this space. And so they're kind of testing out the market to figure out what type of alternative vehicles they can actually buy and operate and what makes sense for their fleet. Um, so they, they buy natural gas vehicles, they buy electric vehicles, they even buy propane powered vehicles. And so they're trying to figure out right now what type of electric vehicles are actually cost effective for their sector um, and, and what's really available. There's only a limited number of these types of vehicles available right now because it's such a small and new market. You and I have talked in the past about some of the perils that companies face when they work with early stage companies. Uh, those companies may uh, not be around uh, in a few years or, or something else may happen. Uh, do you see any risks here for UPS? Yeah, I mean, there are always risks when you work with a startup um, or risky company in general, because like you said, that company could not be there tomorrow or, you know, that company could, you know, have some bad publicity in some respects. Um, so UPS not only is working with Thor, they're also working with a company called Workhorse, which is a really small company also, but they're also working with Tesla, you know, a very uh, prominent company, but um, but Tesla's um, electric semi-truck is the one that um, UPS has placed a pretty large order from. It's about 100, 125 semi-trucks. Um, but, you know, as we know, if you've been following Tesla news, Tesla is kind of busy working on the Model 3 right now. So they're not really taking their semi-truck business super seriously right now. So, you know, that's always a risk too. So UPS, you know, may or may not get this order of trucks. We'll, we'll see. And we saw this week that Uber was uh, putting the brakes on its uh, truck technology called Auto. So there's a, another case in point. So what happens next? When does UPS actually get to start driving these Thor trucks? So later this year, um, Thor is developing two electric delivery trucks, and they're supposed to deliver them to UPS at some point later this year. And then UPS will go through and test them for about six months. So driving them around on routes in cities um, and testing out the battery. I mean, the battery is only a hundred mile range, which isn't isn't particularly large. Um, so UPS is will need to figure out what a 100-mile range vehicle can actually do for them. 
Yeah, yeah, probably from a distribution center to a retail store, things like that, not necessarily around to our homes. Great story. The, the third story I want to talk about this week is uh, was by uh, Catherine Winkler, our editor-at-large and the former CSO at uh, EMC, the, the big uh, uh, IT company. One of the great wise uh, wise hands in the sustainability field. Uh, she wrote a piece called "Speaking of Climate Change: A CSO's Guide," basically talking about what she's learned about how do you talk about climate change as a professional to various and as a, just a human, as a as a citizen, uh, to various audiences. Catherine has has been doing this a long time. She's been also through the Climate Reality Project that that Al Gore uh, runs and, and uh, has been in a num- number of other uh, positions to be, be talking about this. And, and I just I just love her advice. I love the fact that, you know, she has real life examples about, you know, how to talk about. So, for example, with one one audience, um, she talks about climate gentrification, which we've written about. It's about uh, how uh, it's an equity issue, how some people of color, poor people, marginalized communities are often uh, the ones who are getting pushed out, but but they're, uh, the rush to higher ground is being taken over by those of, of, of more means. And so all of a sudden, uh, people are being forced out of, of some neighborhoods. Or sometimes those higher, neighborhood, higher ground neighborhoods are the poor communities, and those are getting gentrified, and, and, and people are getting pushed out. Is that an issue that, uh, that becomes a, an entry point to have a, a conversation, not necessarily about... Uh, the doom and gloom of the earth, you know, going through an existential moment and, and all of us along with it. Uh, so I just I just liked her advice here. I, I imagine, Katie, you must have moments where you are, are dealing with this both as a as a citizen and as a professional. Yeah, for sure. Um, particularly in my life as a journalist, I'll speak to a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs, business people, investors who um, you know, may or may not feel the same way that you do about the facts of climate change. But I thought in particular, one, her bit of advice about risk was really interesting. Um, you know, two industries that I've followed that usually have a kind of conservative bent and, you know, also a representative of a lot of states um, in the middle of the U.S. Um, and one of those is the insurance industry and the other is farmers. Um, so I think those two industries are, are an example of a kind of more conservative industry that actually is coming as recognizing climate change and is changing their industry dramatically, but they're coming from it from a different point of view from, you know, people on the East and West Coast. Yeah, I find that uh, insurance, also finance, banking of, of all sorts, that when you can uh, turn the conversation again in a business context to uh, away from environmental concerns and just talk about risk, uh, you open a lot of, of of conversations that might not have have been had in terms of of you know what is the risk to uh, to business continuity and supply chain reputation finance uh, all kinds of things and and when you start talking in those terms whether or not you believe as if climate change is a belief system but whether or not you acknowledge the reality of climate change or or think it's some some quirk in the in the weather system uh, you at least can recognize that that there is some disruption and that's going to be a problem for business and and ultimately for for all of us as we because it doesn't stop at company doors it stops it doesn't even stop at our front doors. It's going to be affecting the food systems, to your point about farmers and and lots of other things. So uh, I highly recommend this piece by, uh, speaking of climate change, by Catherine Winkler, 
uh, just a great peek into how one person has framed this issue for others. So in the world of energy news, uh, we've had some this week where uh, fuel cell maker Bloom Energy, as Katie, you wrote about, achieved something rare. After 16 years, it, it had a successful uh, debut on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and uh, you know that sort of brought to light this whole subject of, of fuel cells, which has, again, been around a long, long time and has sort of been trying to find a, a substantial market. And, and Bloom seems to have, have done that. But um, Katie, let's talk about fuel cells and, and what's going on out there. Sure. So fuel cells are really interesting technology that have been uh, somewhat limited over the past few years. But in in recent year, we've seen that companies are increasingly looking to fuel cells to power their operations and their buildings. Um, and then other companies are looking to fuel cells to power things like forklifts in their distribution centers. So um, the same week that um, Bloom IPO'd, I decided to speak with uh, Plug Power CEO Andy Marsh, who has been in the industry for a decade um, and had some really interesting things to say about Bloom Energy's IPO. So what is Plug Power? What do they do? So Plug Power makes a fuel cell. It's a different kind than Bloom makes. Um, it's one that's based on hydrogen technology. Um, so they, uh, and the fuel cell is more targeted toward mobility. So like Bloom Energy's fuel cell will run continuously 24 hours, but Plug Power's fuel cell is targeted more towards stop and start applications like moving a car or a forklift. Um, and so uh, Plug Power has been selling these fuel cells to power forklifts for some really large corporations in their distribution centers, including Amazon and Walmart. So they've gotten a pretty good business going around that. So you talked to Andy Marsh. Uh, what was that about? So we talked about the fuel cell market in general, but also about um, what Bloom Energy's IPO could do for the fuel cell market. Um, and Andy had some really interesting things to say about Bloom's IPO. I think it's a great milestone. Uh, you know, I, I actually uh, spent a lot of time uh, lobbying with KR for the energy tax credit. You know, I'm really excited for Bloom and the success they've had with the offering. I think it's, and I think for the industry, it's quite positive. I think they've developed a business model that's uh, beginning to show ability to scale. Uh, I guess yesterday he was really fairly upbeat about uh, their ability to reach profitability. So I'm really pleased about it. I think it's uh, it just it's great to have a company with such a strong growth story uh, hitting the market. And so like everybody, I think I've been watching Bloom for years and years, and it's really, it's really great to see it come to fruition. So we've been hearing that the widespread commercialization of fuel cells is just around the corner. Where are we in that market now? So fuel cells are starting to be used uh, increasingly for certain applications. And one in particular that I thought was fascinating was that these um, fuel cells to power forklifts and distribution centers is growing alongside the rise of online shopping, which is kind of interesting and counterintuitive. Um, so Plug Power sells these um, forklift fuel cells to Amazon and Walmart. And some of the, um, you know, the days that the fuel cell forklifts get used and uh, have a payback dramatically are the days when they have these kind of 
uh, online shopping extreme days. So like Prime Day, which happened recently, um, you know, the companies that operate these fuel cells can really get the most out of them on those days when there's 15 or 16 hour shifts and they can use the fuel cell continuously because it only takes two to three minutes to recharge a fuel cell versus a battery, which is used in a more traditional forklift needs to be taken out and recharged and then put back in. So there's kind of a stoppage in that system. So we just downtime and that that alone becomes a, a financially viable uh, reason to, to use these. Right. And so Plug Power's CEO, Andy Marsh, had this to say about that. The fact that we allow people to continuously operate, especially during, you know, the peaks of, uh, you know, some of the Internet sales when they have special sales days or during the holiday season. I've had many customers tell me that's when the value really shines because they know their assets will be there all day long and operate continuously. Another one of our editors at large, Bob Langer, wrote a piece this week, uh, part of his Inside View column. It's called 10 Minutes with Neil Hawkins from Dow Chemical. It's actually the first of a two-part series that he's doing uh, about Dow and its valuing nature program. The next one, I I think next week, will be with uh, Dow's partner at the Nature Conservancy, specifically with Glenn Prickett, who has been uh, the partner with Dow in this effort that Dow began in uh, back in 2011. I actually wrote the first piece about this, um, where Dow and the Nature Conservancy launched a multi-year effort to measure and track the business value of ecosystem services. It's something that no one had really done before, at least at the in the real world situations that Dow has. So uh, it's now seven years later, and Dow has developed this pretty robust uh, decision-making process that, about how how to value the things like clean air and clean water and biodiversity that nature provides and how to factor that into the P&L of different kinds of projects and business decisions that uh, Dow makes. So so Bob Langer spent a little time with uh, with Neil and has a Q&A about that. But I decided, because I really wanted to hear more about sort of what Dow had learned about all this and not just what they were doing. And so I had a chance to call Neil Hawkins, who is the corporate vice president f- uh, for sustainability at the Dow Chemical Company, to ask him about, you know, what is the learning now after all these years of starting to value nature? And here's a bit of that conversation. One of the things that's interesting uh, about Bob's piece about valuing nature is that it gives some insight into the partnership. But I was kind of wondering, what have you learned about valuing nature? Can you share some of the lessons? Well, uh, Joel, it's really, really exciting. What I'm seeing happen in Dow, you know, this is our third set of 10-year sustainability goals, I would say that the valuing nature goal that we're working on is changing the company's culture. And to me, it seems more like we were with safety 25, 30 years ago where we went through a culture change. So the the power of this is very uh, remarkable for culture change. Now, there's a reason why I think that happened with us. We, We spent the time upfront to really understand how Dow interfaced with nature. We worked with the TNC to develop an approach and some tools. And actually, 
Uh, we're developing new tools even beyond. And then we lined up the goal so that we have value creation for Dow and improved more delivery of ecosystem services within projects as a joint goal. So we're, we're helping achieve more nature value, ecosystem value. At the same time, we're developing economic value. And that put everybody in a position of wanting to brainstorm and then execute projects that are win-win for the environment for Dow. So tell me a real-world story about uh, a decision that Dow had to make and how valuing nature informed and maybe changed that decision, you know, investment in a, in a plant or whatever it was. We have 47 projects so far that we've worked on in the uh, valuing nature goal. This is over the last three years. And we're at positive $200 million of economic value. But let me tell you how it works. Well, we have a wetlands project in Midland, Michigan that we've been working on for a while. But when we started getting into it, the, there was a remediation component. There was a city of Michigan component. When we took what we call the easy tool, the ecosystem uh, services identification uh, tool, the easy tool, which we co-developed with Ecometrics and TNC, when we applied that to different solutions for this land, which is in a flooding area, we found that if we went with the business as usual plan, it would actually decrease the ecosystem services value. What we found is that 10 of 13 ecosystem services were improved if we linked together the city project and the uh, Dow project, and we actually restored this river floodplain to more natural habitat. If we didn't have the easy tool, if we didn't have the mindset of collaborating to find these kinds of win-win solutions, it probably just would have been planted in grass. So what would business as usual have been, and what did you do instead? Business as usual would have been having this Dow land planting grass over it and not linking it to another property that the city of Midland was acquiring. And so what we did is we linked it to a broader solution and then we're replanting and re restoring more biodiverse, appropriately biodiverse trees and bushes and other things to this land. But business as usual in a situation like that would have been to plant grass on it, which to the uninformed eye might look fine, but it doesn't provide the same kind of ecosystem service value to the community that this will. When we showed the results that we could improve 10 of 13 different ecosystem services by putting in the trees, putting in the shrubs, different kinds of foliage. It, it makes for much better flooding control and much better habitat for the local animals that are around. So this wouldn't have happened without the easy tool, which was, uh, that's one of three tools that we've developed. We have first what we call a nature screening tool that we apply. It's a more subjective tool that we apply to all our projects running through our our global project methodology. 
Then for a subset of those, we use the Easy tool. By the way, that's available on Apple iTunes. You can download it to an iPad, and it works beautifully. We, we get no economic value out of that, but we're sharing it with anyone who wants to use it. Then we have a new tool in development called the Nature Scorecard, which really brings together the economics and the uh, ecosystem services. We haven't uh, yet published that or put that out, but our intention is that we will be sharing that as well. So you've simplified the process of measuring ecosystem service impacts of projects. Is this now... uh sort of plug and play or is there, this, is each different uh, project requires still a certain, a certain heavy lift in terms of data collection and, and other things. Uh, I'm just wondering how easy it would be for other companies to step in and use these things. I won't say it's plug and play, but the screening methodology with a very little bit of training and we've trained hundreds of our engineers with these screening tools that's something they do on their own. And we have thousands of projects per year. So it's a large universe of projects. So they're screening those. The easy tool requires experts from our team to help the engineers, but we have quite a few people trained in that. And then we're, we're still experimenting with this nature scorecard. But I, I would tell you, Joel, if companies out there, especially who have a lot of land, and a lot of land near water were applying the kind of system we are, they had many opportunities. And I would flip it the other way, and I would say they're leaving money on the table if they do not have a structured way to think about how they're creating uh, value for their company and for their communities and for nature. I mean, to me, this is more like 30 years ago in energy efficiency. At that time, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. You could go after it. It saves money, and it reduces your carbon footprint. This is an opportunity to save or make money and improve ecosystem services, uh, in many cases, including carbon footprint if vegetation's involved. So finally, Neil, Dow recently committed to find a billion dollars worth of business value by 2025 from projects that are good for the company and better for ecosystems. What does business value mean in this context? Is it is it all savings? Is it revenue? Is it risk reduction? How do you measure and value the business value? We're, we're using standard engineering economics approaches, looking at relative alternatives of different projects. So this is economic NPV for Dow, like we would any project. Every project in Dow undergoes that. But what we do is we look at more natural alternatives, more ecosystem system services alternatives for a given project. So working with uh, nature to clean water, and we have many examples where we're doing this, and I think you're familiar with our uh, older sea drift example where uh, more than $200 million were saved in that one project. That's not part of our goal because it happened before the goal period. But we we now have over $200 million, in fact, $227 million across 47 projects that are validated economic value to Dow. And TNC works with us to validate that 
either in clean air, clean water, healthy soil, or healthier ecosystems. We have a methodology we're working through that we're hitting those at the same time. And usually these projects hit more than one of those four in the same project. Neil Hawkins is Corporate Vice President of Sustainability of the Dow Chemical Company. Thanks for talking to us, Neil. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. Heather and I will be back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Thanks in the meantime to Katie Fehrenbacher for stepping in. Until next week, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.